Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study in the book of Acts. We will be completing part 8 tonight and proceeding right on into part 9. And I want to make a couple of important announcements. Um, I've made a complete revision of all 12 parts, and you can now find that on our website in one single file, one document with all 12 parts. There have been some revisions made, so depending on which revision you have, the original one or that new one, the page numbers may be a little bit off in the latter parts. So I would, uh, if you do have access to the internet and the website, I would strongly recommend at some point downloading that one file and then you have everything together and as I mentioned we're going to be moving right on tonight from part 8 into part 9 and my goal is to start accelerating this a bit so that by the end of August uh, that's my target to complete this entire Bible study so um, we're going to start moving along a little bit more rapidly and again it's important if you have the notes we will not necessarily be going over every line and every detail but you will have that for your own study and review and you can go back and maybe look up some of the verses that we will be passing over so depending on the revision you have we are in part eight Roman numeral 9, Paul and Barnabas separate. In the original uh, notes, I think it's page 175. If you have the newer version, you may need to add a few page numbers to locate that. But we're starting off in Acts 15, and we're going to read from verse 36 to 41. Just real quick background, Paul and Barnabas have completed their first missionary journey. They've come back to Antioch. Sorry about that. They've come back to Antioch and been there for some time teaching the church. And now they've gone to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, returned to Antioch, and been there perhaps for as long as another year or two teaching the church before they're preparing to now embark on their second mission, their second apostolic journey. And we run into a little bit of a glitch here in their plans. Acts 15, 36-41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, before we even get into this, um, I want to make an observation that perhaps I've even made before in this uh, series. You know, the Bible, one of, to me, one of the proofs that it's written by God and not by man is it hangs out all of our dirty laundry. It makes no attempt to cover over stuff and present the people of God as perfect and flawless as I think would be the case if this were written by men. And so we see the flaws, the imperfections of the prophets, the apostles, the people of God from cover to cover. And to me, that's an important proof that this is God's book. And it's a very real book. And this is a rather disturbing portion of scripture because all we've talked about for some weeks now is Paul and Barnabas, two apostles, two men mightily used by God, both on the mission field and even in Jerusalem to help resolve this doctrinal issue that had arisen. Now they're back in Antioch planning their second trip and they come to a sharp disagreement. 
Those are Luke's words. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And we sort of hinted at this problem back in Acts 13 when they first started on their first missionary journey. They took John Mark, uh, Barnabas's cousin, along with them, and very soon into the trip, he deserted them and went back home to Jerusalem. And Paul never forgot that. And so now, Barnabas is wanting to take John Mark along. Another side note, this is the writer of the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. And so, you know, this isn't real good information to put in the New Testament if you want to make the gospel of Mark a credible piece of scripture. But here again, these were flawed men that God was using to write his story and to establish his church. That should be heartwarming to you and me. We're flawed also, but God hasn't quit. God hasn't given up. He has plans to use each and every one of us. So, here we are, and this whole thing begins with Paul saying to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. We call it follow-up. Pastor Tom's been talking a lot about this in his evangelism class. It's not good enough to just preach to someone and then leave them in the lurch. You go back. You water the seed. You follow up. You keep checking to see how they're doing. And so the apostles did with these groups and churches that they had started. Paul now wants to go back and see how the brothers are doing in each and every one of these cities that they had visited. What a love Paul had for these churches. He prayed for them daily. He carried that concern in his heart daily. And even though he knew going back to some of these towns probably meant more trouble, uh, he was opposed, he was persecuted, he was stoned, left for dead in one of the towns that he's now planning to go back and visit, possibly literally put to death and then raised back to life by God. But that doesn't matter. These men were ready and willing to risk their lives to follow up on these churches, believers, groups that they had helped establish. Now, a little more about John Mark. This contention arose over his desertion on their first missionary journey. And we cannot avoid the fact that Mark is a blood relative of Barnabas. That's interesting to note in this whole story. Uh, the scriptures call him his cousin. Whether he was a cousin or a nephew isn't 100% clear because some of the translations are a little bit different. But it really doesn't matter. He was a blood relative of Barnabas. And, you know, they do say blood is thicker than water, and certainly that would be the case here. Barnabas, remember, was uh, named the son of encouragement. He, he seems to have had a real tender heart, a heart to encourage people, and maybe even though John Mark had failed on their first mission, he's wanting to give him a second chance. And he's wanting to encourage his cousin. Paul, on the other hand, seemed to take a very strong stand, fearing perhaps that he would again desert them on this second trip. So this disagreement arises between the two. Um, there's been much written about this, you know, which one was right, which one was wrong. I think we need to be very careful about judging these two great apostles. Um, they were miles ahead of you and me spiritually, so in our own pride, it's easy to be Monday morning quarterbacks and try to analyze this thing. It is what it is. They came to an impasse. They came to a disagreement. Paul felt strongly one way. Barnabas felt strongly the other, 
and they parted company, never to work together again. And, you know, these, though they were mighty men of God, mighty apostles, we also need to continually remind ourselves, as they did, they were only men. These were just human beings with the anointing of God, the grace of God, with the the glory of God in an earthen vessel, or as one translation puts it, in jars of clay. We're just jars of clay with God's glory inside. Take the glory away and you have a pot again. And that's why I think Paul wrote these words to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7, We must be careful about lifting up leaders, lifting up pastors, preachers, apostles. They're they're nothing. None of us is anything. He, He said, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. It is God who gives the increase, and we must always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7. Now, brothers... I have applied these things to myself and Apollos, we've already been introduced to him, another church leader, for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Very clear. Don't lift up one man over another. Don't take pride. Oh, this is my favorite pastor. He's my favorite preacher. We've all fallen into that. But we need to continually be reminded. These are just vessels of clay, mere men, flesh and blood, prone to all the same weaknesses that the rest are prone to. The only difference is the grace of God, the calling of God, the anointing of God on their lives. Now, as Luke relates this situation, he could have easily hidden it, but he doesn't. He tells the whole thing. They came into such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. He's very careful in writing this, He doesn't paint it one way or another so as to make it look like Paul was right, Barnabas was wrong, or vice versa. And it makes for interesting reading and writing and commentaries, but that doesn't seem to be the real point here, who was right or who was wrong. Um, As in almost every dispute there's usually fault to be found on both sides. And if we want to do a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking here, I think that's the case. Um, Barnabas was very likely swayed by the flesh, again, because of his carnal relationship with John Mark, and no doubt his natural affection for what was either his cousin or his nephew. You You and I are no different. As spiritual as we would like to be, we're likely going to be swayed in our judgments by those carnal ties and carnal affections. Nevertheless, that's why Jesus said when he was here on earth, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate father, mother, brother, sister, and all those other carnal relationships. He's not saying to hate them in the sense that you're going to despise them. He's saying, you need to make sure you always love me more, put me above and ahead any of those carnal relationships. Otherwise, you may end up possibly, like Barnabas, making a compromise, placing that carnal love, that carnal relationship, above his commitment to the work of God and his ministry with Paul. Paul, on the other hand, may have been too harsh, and I think there's some evidence later on, which we'll talk about, to indicate that. I think toward the end of his life, 
He probably had some regrets about the way this thing went down, and that's often the case with us when we get involved in these disputes and whatnot. Later on, they don't seem to be quite as important as they did at the time. Um, he was probably a little too harsh, um, certainly not even willing to give John Mark a second chance on this second missionary journey. Uh, in verse 39, it says there was such a sharp disagreement, or some of the Bible say contention. The Bible has a lot to say about contention. And in Proverbs 13.10, it clearly states that all strife, contention, and quarrels come only by pride. That's interesting. They come only by pride. And, you know, we have that saying in English, it takes two to tango. Well, it takes two to quarrel. So when you find yourself in a, in a brawl, in an argument or a quarrel, just understand God's trying to speak to you as much as he is the other person. Both of you are proud. And both of you need to humble yourselves because you're both wrong. And all contention, this was contention, that's what Luke called it, all contention can only arise through pride. So they were both probably a bit bullheaded, stubborn, strong-willed, as leaders usually are. They know and believe that they're right, and therefore we're going with my plan. And when they butt heads with another leader who has the same feeling, there's going to be problems. Those who take Paul's side will point out several things. Barnabas disappears from here on. He takes John Mark and sails back to his homeland of Cyprus. We never hear anything about Barnabas again. We do hear about John Mark later on. Nothing else is ever said about Barnabas in the New Testament. We don't know what happened to him. He just drops off the face of the earth, never heard from again. Paul, on the other hand, his story continues. He chooses Silas, remember he had come from Jerusalem to Antioch to deliver the letter and stayed on for some mysterious reason. Now we know why. Paul and Silas now are going to continue the work on this second missionary journey, and they are commended by the brothers in Antioch to the grace of God. There's no mention of the church or the brothers commending Barnabas and Mark to the grace of God. Those are two things in Paul's favor, indicating that uh, at least he was continuing on in the work of God with the blessing of the church in the grace of God. Nothing more said about Barnabas. In any event, it's heartening to see that in his latter days, literally just before his death, Paul had a change of heart concerning John Mark. It's quite possible that Mark had also experienced a change of heart. He had grown up, perhaps under the ministry and the encouragement of his uncle Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and for whatever reason, in 2 Timothy 4.11, this is really just before Paul's execution in Rome, this is what he writes, 2 Timothy 4.11, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. How nice. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And also, Colossians 4.10. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So, something happened over the years. There's definitely been a reconciliation, a restoration, in the relationship between Paul and Mark, nothing more is mentioned about Barnabas except for his relationship to Mark. Interestingly, after this separation, 
Barnabas goes back to his home country, and Paul goes to his home country. It says in verses 39 to 41, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Remember, that's his home country. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers through the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Remember, um, Paul is from Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. So, that's an interesting thing to notice. Paul and Silas got right to work. They're not going to let this phase them from doing the Lord's will. They begin to go from church to church, strengthening the churches. Sadly, as I mentioned, nothing more is ever heard about Barnabas. So, we're now about to begin the second apostolic mission with Paul and Silas. They've completed the first. A lot of great things happened on their first journey. Paul and Silas are now going back to follow up on those churches, those groups, and to strengthen those brothers. This brings us right into part nine, entitled Paul's Second Missionary Journey, and we actually pick it right up again from Acts 15 and verse 40. If you're following along in the notes, this is now part 9, the original notes, page 181. I think it's page 185 if you have the renewed or the revised version. In, in any case, we're beginning part 9 here now. Paul and Barnabas, joined by Timothy in Lystra. Acts 15, we'll read from verse 40 down to Acts 16 and verse 5. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Chapter 16, verse 1. He came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So here Paul and Silas have come to these same towns we saw in their first journey, Derby and Lystra, in Acts 16, verse 1. Likely, uh, they're vis- going to visit all the same towns we already uh, saw in that first journey. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. The order in which the towns there are vi- being visited is reversed because they're coming from the opposite direction. Certainly, Paul had vivid memories of these towns, especially Lystra, the place where he was stoned possibly to death and where God raised him back to life and wholeness. Of course, the key character here now is Timothy being added to the team. Young Timothy, perhaps on Paul's first visit, was converted under Paul's ministry, I pointed out in the earlier section that it's possible, scriptures don't specifically say it, but I gave some proof in Paul's writings to Timothy, it's very possible that Timothy was one of the converts, one of the believers there, who actually gathered around Paul and saw him raised back to life. And so now, on this second journey, Paul wants to take Timothy along with him. In Paul's uh, 
second letter to Timothy, he mentions a little bit more about Timothy's family. His mother, Eunice, and even his grandmother, Lois, were both both Jewish believers. His father was a Greek. It's possible that by this point in time, he had died. Nothing more is said of him. Certainly nothing is ever spoken of his faith or his coming to Christ, so we're not really led to believe that he ever became a disciple. It's just that nothing is said about him. You would think Paul would have said something about him if he was a real strong believer, because Paul does mention the mother and the grandmother. In any event, Paul was a Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, Timothy was a disciple with a good testimony in the churches of Lystra and Iconium. And verse 3 says, Paul wanted to take Timothy along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, this is one of several other incidents that we're going to encounter later on in the book of Acts that are a little difficult to explain and understand, but we will try. I think the key here, we've just finished this big thing in Jerusalem over do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? They clearly resolve that. No, a Gentile does not need to be circumcised. Matter of fact, we just read here, they're carrying those letters from Jerusalem to these different groups of Gentiles and reading the decision of the apostles and elders to them. This case is a little different, however. Timothy is a half-Jew. And in the Jewish culture, if your mother was a Jew, it didn't matter if your father was a Greek, you were considered a Jew. And so, there's a problem here. Timothy is an uncircumcised Jew. And Paul is about to take him on this second missionary journey, where he will definitely be encountering both Jews and Gentiles. And it says specifically, he circumcised Timothy because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that Timothy's father was a Greek, but that means they also knew his mother was a Jew. Paul would later refer to Timothy as a youth, or a young man, 15 years later. So, he may even be a teenager, (coughs) a very young man at this time. Not only did the apostles always travel in pairs, we've talked about this, they would often take younger disciples, like John Mark on the first journey, or Timothy on this second journey, for practical training, on-the-job experience, uh, call it what you will, uh, also to be of assistance and to be a helper to the apostles in their work. What a privilege for Timothy to be chosen by Paul to accompany him on this second missionary uh, journey. And it certainly uh, formed a very deep father-son bond between the two that lasted throughout the remainder of their lives. Now, I don't want to take a long time on this issue, but let's come back to it for a moment. Why did Paul insist on circumcising Timothy when he had steadfastly refused to compel Titus to be circumcised some time previously? You can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. Well, There are two different situations, and there are two different issues at play here. Titus was a Gentile. He had no Jewish family ties or family background, so it's a separate issue. Timothy is half Jew. 
His mother, we just read, was a Jewess. And Paul did this because of the Jews in the area, not in order for Timothy to be saved. This has nothing to do with Timothy's salvation. It's rather to avoid any stumbling, any offense, any difficulty in ministering to Jews as they move about from place to place. So, as I mentioned, Timothy was by law a Jew because of his mother, but in the Jewish culture, because he had never been circumcised, he would be viewed as an apostate Jew, an uncircumcised Jew. That was not really the kind of baggage that Paul wanted to be carrying around on his apostolic journey. This had nothing to do with Timothy's salvation. It was not a question of the fundamental Christian doctrine which they had just resolved in Jerusalem. This was entirely different, and I think the best way to explain this is to read Paul's own explanation of his practices, and this will cover a few other questionable things that arise later on in the book of Acts, uh, where Paul took vows and, and that kind of stuff. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 22. I think this gives us an insight into Paul's heart, that he wasn't trying to reverse the doctrinal decision of the Jerusalem council. Starting with verse 19, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. Pause for a minute. That's the driving force here. What will both be most effective in winning people to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. Here's the clincher. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul did not want Timothy to be a hindrance to him being able to win Jews to Messiah Jesus. So when he's around Jews, he becomes like a Jew. He doesn't revert to full-blown Judaism. He just becomes like a Jew, speaks their language, um, is sensitive to their culture, their laws, their customs, their traditions, because he knew them, so that he can win them to Jesus Christ. He says, to the Jews I became like a Jew. It's very clear in Acts 16.3, he circumcised Timothy because of the Jews who lived in that area. You know, some years ago, when I went on a mission trip to Israel, we learned how to sing in Hebrew, we learned how to speak a few words in Hebrew, we learned a little bit about the Hebrew customs and laws, traditions and cultures, and we went armed with a tract written in Hebrew from Isaiah 53, and the title was, Of Whom Speaks the Prophet? You know? And we learned to be sensitive about using certain words that would turn off a Jewish person. That's not compromising the gospel. That's doing all you can in your power to win Jews to Jesus. And 
it was effective. We won some Jews to Christ while we were there. That's what Paul was always keen on doing. He didn't care what he had to become, whether he was a Jew or a Gentile or whatever. He says, I'm ready to become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. So, with Timothy circumcised, they begin their mission. Verses 4 and 5 in Acts 16, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Remember, that letter was addressed to Gentiles, and so in no way, shape, or form is Paul contradicting that Jerusalem decision. Matter of fact, they're delivering that decision in all the Gentile cities that they visit. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. This is what we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Luke gives these little progress reports. Churches were growing, they were multiplying, they were growing daily in numbers, and so forth. Note something here. It doesn't just say the churches were growing in numbers. Praise God for that. We're always looking for new souls. We're always looking for growth in numbers in churches. But churches may grow in number, but if they're not also growing real disciples in spiritual character, they're failing. Here, he includes both. I like this verse. The churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. We need both. We need growth in numbers, but each individual must also be growing in faith, growing in grace, growing in the Word of God, growing in their knowledge of God. This is a a good report that we should always be looking for. Churches that are growing in faith and growing in numbers. One without the other is really meaningless. One at the expense of the other is still meaningless. And there are some movements where we see great increase in numbers, growing by leaps and bounds. But when you get in the middle of that thing, you find out that the people don't even know the Word of God. They don't even know what they're doing. They're not growing in Christ. Many of them aren't even saved. They've just kind of joined the crowd because there's good music, maybe good food and good entertainment. That's not what was happening in the early church. They were growing in faith and growing in numbers. All right, moving right along to a key part of this second mission, what is often referred to as Paul's Macedonian call. We'll read Acts 16, 6 through 10. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, very important pronoun we'll talk about, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is one of my favorite stories in Acts, and there are many, many important lessons we can glean from this. First of all, this is the first time where we actually see the Holy Spirit forbidding them from going to a certain region to preach the gospel. Well, I thought 
Jesus had told them in Acts 1.8, go into all the world. But, as we mentioned last time, the success of this early church centered around their sensitivity to the leading, guiding voice of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have a set of rules or some guidebook that they were following. They were being led by the Spirit. They that are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And they were listening for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They didn't just go in there like a bull in a china shop and say, all right, we're going into Bithynia no matter what, and we're going to preach the gospel there. No, they sensed the Holy Spirit saying, no, don't come here now. Don't enter into this place now. So there were certain regions when they tried to go there, the Holy Spirit said, no, not now. So, having passed through Phrygia and Galatia, they wanted to move into the province of Asia. It wasn't time yet. And the Holy Spirit forbade them. Holy Spirit kept them from going there. How beautiful to see how the Holy Spirit was opening doors and closing doors, saying, go here, don't go there. That's why their ministry was so successful. God help us to seek that Holy Spirit guidance in our lives and churches in our day. So, having revisited Phrygia and Galatia, they are stopped, kept, it says in the NIV, by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is even stronger. It means forbidden, and that's the word used in the King James. And the Message Bible says they were blocked by the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we have an experience where it seems like we're butting our heads against the wall. We're trying and trying and trying to make something happen. We're trying to get something done, and it's just not going. Now, there may be some demonic influence. Paul, in another place, says there's a wide and effectual door opened for me, but there are many adversaries. This isn't about the adversary. This is about the Holy Spirit blocking them. They have been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into this place. And, you know, by experience... When the Holy Spirit is forbidding you, you might as well give up the plan. It ain't going to happen. You're not going there. It's not going to work. When God shuts a door, no man can open it. And they tried to enter Bithynia. They were not permitted. And we're not told why. And God will not always tell you why. He'll just say no. And we saw in Acts 1, God has times and seasons set by his own authority. We don't question those times. God makes everything beautiful in his time. Bottom line, it wasn't time for them to go to these places yet, so they move on. Meanwhile, Paul has a vision, a very clear vision of a man from Macedonia calling to him, saying, come over and help us. Now, I've given a long list here, and we're just going to skim over it. I would strongly recommend you study this list, because it's important for all of us to learn how to be guided by the Holy Spirit. He has many ways, <clears throat> excuse me, he has many ways of guiding us. Sometimes he'll use a dream. Sometimes he'll use a vision. Sometimes he'll use another person. Sometimes he'll use circumstances. We see all kinds of different ways in which the Holy Spirit guided these apostles in the early church. Let me run through this list very quickly. In Acts 1.8, Jesus had already given them the master plan. Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. 
That's the broad picture. They have that already from Jesus. Then, at times, they receive direct guidance through the scriptures. Peter received guidance from Old Testament scriptures in Acts 1 in choosing a replacement for Judas. James used scriptures in the Jerusalem Council to resolve the problem of whether Gentiles were to keep the law or not. So sometimes scriptures were used by the Holy Spirit to give them guidance, direction. There were a number of instances where angels directed, gave direct counsel and guidance to the apostles, sometimes releasing them from prison and then giving them instructions, go back to the temple and preach the gospel, as we saw with Peter in Acts 5. We saw in Acts 8, an angel of the Lord guided Philip to leave the revival in Samaria and go out into the desert for one man, the Ethiopian eunuch. On a number of occasions in the book of Acts, Acts 11, Acts 13, again in Acts 21, we'll see this, the Holy Spirit used prophets. Remember, apostles, prophets. This is the office of a prophet. He used prophets to deliver messages to these apostles. That's another way. Another way, they often had an inner sense or an inner witness of what the Holy Spirit wanted. We talked about this at length last time. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Paul was often being warned by the Holy Spirit about imprisonments, persecutions, and hardships that awaited him in the towns he was visiting. There were times when the Holy Spirit spoke directly to them. Um, Acts 1, Philip in Acts 8, Peter when he was on the roof in Joppa, the Holy Spirit spoke directly to them. Whether it was an audible voice or just the still small inner voice of the Spirit, we don't know. But he spoke to them and directed them. As we've just noted, there were times such as this in Acts 16, where the Holy Spirit specifically says, no, don't go there. We sometimes refer to having a check in the Spirit. The same thing. It's the Holy Spirit saying, no, don't do it, don't say it, don't go there. Something inside is saying, no, stop. That's what happened here. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Many times, and this is important, many times they were guided by circumstances. We don't always have to have an angel, a vision, or some, you know, supernatural voice speaking to us. I'm always a little leery of people that are constantly having visions, dreams, angels flying around their heads, Holy Spirit speaking audibly to them. Don't get me wrong. I just mentioned, those are all ways and means that the Holy Spirit can guide us. But many times, including in the book of Acts, these mighty apostles were guided by circumstances. Circumstances. Peter and John, we saw in Acts 3, were at the temple. Why? It was the time of daily prayer, 3 p.m. That wasn't a vision or a dream or an angel. They went because it was time for prayer. And they met the cripple at the door. They had a great miracle. A great revival broke out. And it landed them in jail. All because of a circumstance. The disciples in Jerusalem were scattered in Acts 8. Why? Because of persecution. They didn't move out because of the Holy Spirit or an angel, a voice, or a vision. They were scattered by circumstances, bad ones, persecution. Sometimes the civil authorities 
asked these guys to leave certain places where they were. Acts 16, we're going to see that a little later. Paul and Silas were driven out of Philippi by the civil authorities. Uh, Paul would later be taken to Jerusalem and then on to Caesarea by the authorities. He was arrested. He was a prisoner. He had no control over his movements. But God, the sovereign God, operates behind circumstances. And you and I must never forget that. We're not victims of circumstances. We are led by God's providential hand, always in control of our circumstances. What does it say? All things. What does all mean? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Very important. God uses circumstances to guide us, speak to us, and move us from place to place. Another one, guidance frequently came through the counsel and the initiative of other Christians. Not angels, not visions, not necessarily anointed prophets, just other Christians. The apostles in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to Samaria in Acts 8 just because they heard about the revival there. They didn't go because an angel visited them in the night season. They just decided, you know, we're going to send Peter and John down to Samaria to check this thing out. In Acts 11, the church in Jerusalem had sent Barnabas and Antioch. Um, that wasn't a real spiritual visitation. They just decided to send them, and they went. They were being guided by the counsel of others. The brethren at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to resolve this doctrinal issue, and Judas and Silas were sent by the Jerusalem church back to Antioch with Paul and Silas. And on and on we could go with the list. So it's not always that you need a vision in the night or an angel flying around your head. Praise God when that happens. It doesn't have to happen all the time. But that brings me back to what we have at hand here. God was going to supernaturally redirect this mission through a vision. They had tried to go other places. The Holy Spirit had stopped them. Holy Spirit is now going to speak to them through a vision given to Paul. There are at least five occasions listed in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where the apostles were guided by visions. Before we look at those, first of all, the word vision comes from a Greek word which means to stare at, to discern clearly, to appear something gazed at, a spectacle. And thus, it's a vision. It's something that you see. You actually see something. Uh, you're gazing at a scene. Visions were promised by the prophet Joel with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter confirmed that on the day of Pentecost. Young men are going to see visions. So uh, that's a part of God's way of leading people through the Holy Spirit. And um, we saw in Acts 9, Ananias was guided by a vision to Paul. In Acts 10, Cornelius, who wasn't even saved yet, was guided by a vision to send for Peter. Peter, likewise, is guided by a vision to go to the house of Cornelius. Acts 18, Paul would have yet another vision, and here, in Acts 16, he has a vision of a man. All it says is a man. 
We don't know who he was. There's been a lot written to try to figure out who he was. We're not told who he was. He may have been the Philippian jailer that Paul is going to meet in Philippi. We don't know. He's just a man. Could be representative of the whole region of Macedonia crying out for the word of God. What's interesting is after Paul had seen the vision, it says, we, the personal plural pronoun, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. This is the first place where Luke includes himself. He's now joining this second missionary journey. He would join it for portions leave it and then rejoin Paul even on future missions, and it switches from they back to we. But now it's we. We got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This was clear, it was specific, and there was a unanimous agreement in the Spirit, from all of them, that this was God, and that's why they immediately left for Macedonia. Um, we don't know all of the details of how they came to that understanding, but there certainly wasn't a big, long discussion or argument or a need to take a vote. They all concluded, the Greek word here is to be knit together, to be united, to infer, or to prove together. They all just came to a unanimous sense. This is the Lord, let's go. And this is where we're going to have to end for tonight, but I'm really excited when we get back to this next time, because a lot of times when God clearly gives us direction, we have a vision, a dream, an angel, confirmations, whatever it may be, but we embark on this new mission with, with, with zest. We know God has called us. He's given us confirmations, and here we go. The Lord is with us. Well, the Lord was with them, and the Lord was calling them, and the Lord gave a marvelous vision and marvelous confirmation. And they're going to have some real good success in the next portion of this journey, but they're also going to have some real suffering. They're going to be landed in jail, beaten, put into the stocks, and as if that isn't bad enough, there's an earthquake while they're in the prison. So don't be misled here. Sometimes God opens a door, He speaks clearly to us, so that we'll know we're on the right track. That doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. There may be some real troubles ahead, and he wants you to know, when you get into the trouble, I am with you. I brought you here. I'll be with you in this prison. I'll be with you in this persecution. Take heart. I will never leave you. So, we're going to have to leave it there. Paul's had the vision. They're heading for Macedonia. They're going to Greece. They're now going to take the gospel to Europe. This thing is reaching out further and further as the Holy Spirit directs them. Holy Spirit said no for now about going into Asia. It's time to go to Macedonia, Greece, and into Europe. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so blessed to see how your Holy Spirit led these early Christians, these apostles and leaders in their efforts to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the world. And God, we know you've given us the same commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But Lord, the specifics of that are in the hands of the Holy Spirit. You open doors that no man can close, and you close doors that no man can open. Holy Spirit, help us to be sensitive to your leading, your guiding, whether it's through visions, dreams, angels, prophecies, the Word of God, circumstances, 
or what other means you might choose to guide us. Help us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Help us to discern the Holy Spirit. Help us to recognize the difference between our own spirit and your Holy Spirit, lest we be deceived and say, God is telling me to do this, when really it's just our own stubbornness, our own pride, our own mind leading us. God, we want to be led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are the true sons and daughters of God. And Lord, as we continue next time in this study, teach us how to be led by your Holy Spirit. Help us to discern the doors that you're opening for us. And yes, there may be trouble brewing there, but there's also opportunity that you've already prepared hearts, you've prepared souls to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Certainly that was the case with Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, whoever else was with them on this second mission. They would have great success, but they would also encounter great opposition. Help us never to forget, O God, that even when you open a door, there are many adversaries. There's great persecution. There's always opposition from the enemy when we're moving in your plan. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Let us know that you're there with us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Bless each and every one that is tuned in tonight. Keep them as the apple of your eye. Show them your favor. Give them your protection. Give us your shalom until you come back for us.